If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. back it's part two of our Mio Mionic episode and we're going to dive a little bit into his music and the album that Chris has picked for this week's selection so let's get straight to it Chris take it away So, the music, 120 compositions, as I said, 24 records. He's been putting stuff out uh, in record form at least since 1979 when he released the KMH Piano in the Continuous Mode. As I mentioned earlier on, that was the first time that that continuous word really appeared and it slowly evolved into just continuous music. Uh, that album is it's quite long, it's got multiple tracks, it's, um, it's much more atonal. It's got the occasional flourish of kind of protracted sweetness, uh, but it's got a lot more dissonance. Um, and it's actually, I think it maybe, it sounds, a, I don't want to say conventional, it's not conventional, but certainly it's got more of the kind of mixed modality of some more complicated classical music. Um, whereas the later he gets, the sweeter he gets in terms of the, 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 the key and the, the chord progressions. Let's put it this way, if music, music's maths and he talks so much about relying on the harmonics that are coming off his instruments and the harmonics and the amplification of those different qualities and features of the different sounds, it, it's a mathematical thing and it's, the, you know, if you, if you want to reduce it to its simplest part, you know, chords are like, you take the 12, you divide it by 3, you can divide it by 4, you can divide it by 2 and that's when you build up these chords that sound right and then when you start dividing it by 5 or 7, that's when you get diminished chords and minor chords and all these like sort of like more complicated sounds uh, on this album he has a lot more of those irregular and odd numbers appearing and sort of like pushing a swing like if you want to create a harmonic if you're pushing the swing you have to kind of match up with the with the uh, frequency of the swing 
you know, you have to sort of complement it, whether it's pushing it halfway through, whether it's waiting till it finishes, whether it's joining it at a stage, but you're you're working with it. What he does, and this is a lot with the chords and the notes, is that he kind of hits that swing when it's coming back towards him and sort of, because of that, the harmonics never really get that chance to develop. And so this record doesn't have that quality of all these other tones and things appearing the way some of the later stuff does, where everything's played uh, a little bit sweeter. Um the next, I'm not going to touch on all these records. So, 1983 brought out a record called Concert Requiem. I think there's a sample of it on YouTube. It's hard to get some of this stuff actually, uh, but a track called Islands. Uh, it's got violin I think it's violin Or a cello played very high I think it's a violin Pretty sure it's a violin Yeah It's absolutely gorgeous That song um, About two and a half minutes Into it uh, When the metre shifts a bit It's oh, it's, it's, it's a beautiful work There's, I, mean, some I, find that, I find that he's better when he's, got, he's accompanied I think he's a lot more interesting when he's accompanied I would agree with that, yes I mean, a lot of the best moments have accompaniments I mean, I don't think It's not a precondition But certainly, I mean, after this length of a career as well He's, he's definitely at risk of repeating himself um, I mean, some people accuse him And I think fairly accuse him Of sometimes being overly saccharine Especially, as I mentioned, about the, the, the way the harmonics Have to be constructed with sympathetic notes uh, It sometimes leads to some very predictable And quite sweet, almost cheesy patterns It doesn't do much at all between 1994 and 2010. The only thing I found by him was a bonus track that appeared on uh, a record called Remnants of Man from like 1985. It was reissued with a bonus track from 2001. But I mean, the guy, I mean, maybe I'm just missing something, but he really seems to have dropped off the map for 15, 16 years. And I, I speculated a wee bit with you, Mark, you know, because of his eccentricity, there could be some personal uh, aspect to that, some health aspect to that. I've no way of knowing that, but it is really, really odd that, uh, I mean, he was, he was being very, very productive up to that point, and then he's just gone. Um, the, the Remnants of Man record actually is is, is quite nice. It's, a, it's one of the ones that he does with two pianos, and as a result, you get this crazy mirrored effect. And I've no idea how he adds the bass notes on it because he's playing this incredibly complex pattern and then suddenly these bass notes appear and it's just, it's mind-blown, really. Um, did you look at Discogs? There's a whole bunch of CDRs on there that he released, like, right from 1996 right up to 2013. I didn't, but I think even in that context, why why is he releasing CDRs? He was working with labels. I, I, I think it's an interesting... It's period in his life that he's retreated in this way and that made me wonder where he was you know I'm kind of dancing yeah. around it a wee bit but you know where he was physically mm-hmm. located at that point well he did um, see some interviews it, it can sometimes take him it took him like it took him years to write windmills so unless he was keeping all of his good stuff maybe maybe he's still maybe the stuff he's recording the stuff that he's just written and memorised because that was another thing he spoke about in interviews like this idea of like it takes him a long time to memorise these hour sets which have got like a thousand a hundred thousand plus notes like maybe he's just been writing it possibly but you're also it may also have been in a faraway place that no man can really get to without <laughs> signing in Wait, yeah, well, without <laughs> signing in with bars in the windies so. um yeah, I mean, I, that said, I know he had a daughter at least because I saw her perform with him when I saw them. Um, so maybe it was family time. It could well have been family time, who knows. Uh, 2010, as I say, he returned with a record called Beyond Romance. Dirty concrete crucifix on top of a cliff in the cover. 
in keeping with his religiosity. There's a thinner sound to this record actually than some of the later stuff, um, but it is very sweet and like very romantic. The title track uh, Beyond Romance, which actually reappears in a later release, has some absolutely beautiful moments. It's fantastic. Four minutes twenty in that song, it's stunning, um, and it's also I mean, it, the way that the song ends is absolutely hypnotic. Like it's entrancing. It's really, it does leave you quite speechless, and that's what I mean. The guy is, he is next level, even though he knows it. Uh, 2013, you mentioned windmills, which apparently are living beings. Um, <laughs> kind of fairly famous amongst his fans that album um, and I saw him play a few of the pieces live uh, Corollaries was 2013 uh, and also in 2013 he released three solo pieces the first two tracks in that I am not fussed at all about but the third track in it is called Cloud Passad number three Is so beautiful. Like, really, really recommend looking that out. Um, it's about almost 90 minutes long. Terrific. Um, one of the other big markers in his career is the album Illyrion from 2016, which was actually on Sony, uh, a kind of classical yeah. print of Sony. Um, very grandiose uh, it has a, as we said a reworked version of Beyond Romance which is a lot darker and a bit slower and I, th- I kind of think I prefer the, the original if I'm honest I prefer that one do you? Oh, yeah, yeah I know people are divided in that um, I like the brightness the other one is quite frantic I don't know if he made the choice to sort of I mean he's he's commented people have said to him could you play faster than 19.5 notes per hand per second and he said Maybe, or maybe when he was younger, he was like, but at that point, the notes stopped to register, and he's like, you no longer get any quality from them, and so there's not really necessarily a point. Um, so maybe slowing it down was, you know, a deliberate thing to try and benefit the music. There's some there's some interesting dynamics in that album. Um, the song Sun- "Sunset" almost starts like a normal track, although it, it then kicks into life and ends up becoming like a kind of f- gloomy fog of like lower register metallic uh, resonance, string resonances. Really interesting, and um, Cloud Number Eighty One also has this kind of accessibility to it, but at the same time is a little bit boring as a result. I feel. Uh, or at least to, to start with uh, and then his most recent album uh, Fallen Trees in 2018 didn't really make any real impression on me Um, for me, the standout in his Karen has always been Corollaries uh, it was one of the first ones I heard 
uh, it was a real sonic breakthrough, I think, in terms of the, the recording and the, the mixing and the mastering. It's got that balance of the warmth of Illyrian, but the brightness of Beyond Romance. It's got a really nice clarity, uh, but as you said, it's it's heavily accompanied. So on this record, he, uh, well, first and foremost, it was produced uh, by Peter Broderick, uh, who's he's an American guy, he's, he's an indie folk kind of guy, he was in uh, was it Horse Feathers. Um, he was, was in, in After Clung. Funnily enough, I might bring Peter Broderick to the table himself or we might talk about Arthur Russell as well and Peter Broderick is heavily involved with uh, Arthur Russell's uh, legacy. But yeah, it's interesting that so like Peter Broderick, who's on Erased Tapes as well, and then Niels Fram is also involved with sort of co-production and uh, performing on this record. Um, who's also on the Erased Tapes label. So, I mean, Erased Tapes themselves are a fairly hip uh, record label for the more esoteric indie post-classical What I find interesting is that he's never been part of the classical scene. He's never been part of, like, any particular scene until round about now when it's it's the indie kids that start picking up on him yeah and yeah. then five years later it's sony classical finally come along he's all, he's definitely been an outsider in all forms i read yeah, a really but, interesting thing in an interview where he talked about how he played with some classical musicians and maybe in the 80s or maybe the 70s and they heard him playing and one guy was like my god that guy's amazing it sounds like that's what the piano was actually made for and somebody else was like it sounds like this guy doesn't know what he's doing and that was the review that stuck with him. And he spent a long time being very, very angry at classical people because he would not accept him and his style, which he thinks is the best thing ever, you know, as being something which is like the next stage of piano, classical Sup- music. Super interesting because I was going to say the exact same thing is that there was some people had admiration crossing into sort of, uh, what's the phrase? Envy Envy and inadequacy When they saw Mm. how this guy could play And the fact that they couldn't possibly emulate it But then there's also quite a sniffy And dismissive attitude to the sort of gimmickiness Of what he's done The fact that he has a world record The fact that it's so Sometimes quite schmaltzy You know, sort of played in these quite Sort of standard progressions Um, And you read some reviews I've, I've read reviews of like kind of Festivals, but from a, a sort of classical magazine perspective, you know, kind of highbrow broadsheet sort of stuff, Guardian and all that. And the reviewers are very dismissive of them. Like they're, they're like, "What is this tacky garbage?" Somebody switched on a whole bunch of arpeggiators for forty-five minutes, and then we got to watch some real musicians after. And <laughs> yeah, so it definitely jars with them. And maybe the bravado is like a little bit of a compensation for that. You know, like the sort of striking back at the people that mock them or that kind of like turn their nose up at them. Um, but yeah, so he worked with Peter Broderick and this. Peter Broderick actually plays a violin on four of the tracks. Uh, play, he plays um, synth on the fourth one and he does vocals as well on the first track. As I said, the album was uh, mixed by Nils Fram uh, and I think that, that partnership really works. Mark, I also put you onto a video of him playing with Nils Fram. The two of them are accompanying each other and there's a live artist as well. like a really highly spoken of uh, series of shows that they did um, this kind of improvisational uh, I don't know it's just a giant suite really isn't it but uh, mm. I mean it is it's something that fascinating to watch but uh, he works with Neil Thram really well on this uh, there's also a guy on it called Martin Hine who plays guitar on track 4 which is interesting and synth on track 6 um, the violin stuff from Broderick and this works amazingly um, yeah, uh, Pockets of Light, the first tune uh, You can hear right at the very start You know, it's Peter saying, uh, let's just see what happens Yeah mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, it's that, can, that kind of sums up the attitude of this collaboration And it's, it's kind of a beautiful thing He had apparently they'd written that he, Broderick had written down some lyrics and just sort of run them past Lubomir Melnick and he was like, "Oh, I love those Peter. Yeah, they're great. Just go for it." And then he just improvised the rest of it along with it. Uh, so I mean, it's it's a it's a beautiful effect, really. Um, it's a great opener that track because of the way it, it, it builds in. It really is like a classical sweep in, almost like the opening credits or something. Mm-hmm. Um, did you notice that 
I mean, maybe it's a rookie mistake, but you can hear the click of one of the keys in the right speaker. One of the microphones has picked up a kind of... Yeah, I actually like that. I really Mm -hmm. like... I like it, yeah. I like it organic thing sweet. that really gives it life See, they, they, yeah they leave a lot of those they leave a lot of those little imperfections in his records you know because he's playing so many notes he often hits a wrong one and they leave it in the records you can hear it I mean he's playing so many it's it's not worth going back and he's certainly not retouching these in digital suites you know so um, I think the vocals in that one actually have a kind of Sigur Ross quality to them totally. um, And it's got a really beautiful gradual outro, which again is quite hypnotic. Um, the second track in that six-day moment is probably the most. It's, it's the only unaccompanied track on the record, and it has like this true, authentic classical dramatic sweep when it gets introduced. It's a very earnest song, I think. It's quite, I don't want to say po-faced, but it takes itself very seriously. Um, uh, there is a little moment at about 4 minutes 50 that eases the sort of dramatic tension where it kind of relaxes just a little bit, takes its foot off the gas, and that's a really lovely passage. And I think the decay at the end where the, the song, the kind of low end of the song gradually dissipates and it, it fades out about 7 minutes well, 7 minutes 45 I think it is uh, into this gorgeous high end sort of arpeggiated outro you can really hear the highest keys you know the keys where the, the string is so short it re- doesn't really resonate you can really hear them like punching through um, I, love, I love the thing I loved about that song the most is that like it was when I realised that like you know a lot of piano players the left hand is just the bass but like it's a totally different counter melody and then because he's playing arpeggios so fast you get like counterpoints within counterpoints and it stacks up like a waterfall of notes you know uh, and really, the, it's a beautiful way of putting it aye. and uh, the thing I loved about this song is like it's it's like I think it, you know if this was like 1978 when he released his first album like he's shown off but this one it's like it takes a lot of a lot of restraint to be this good this impressive and not show off at the same time you know it's not grandiose but it's like accomplished and really technical and I think that's that, that speaks to like it speaks to like probably grown as an artist as well over his career but also probably who he's working with I think some of the interviews he was saying that it seemed like he had that he, don't, he didn't really say it but it seemed like he had quite a lot of trepidation working with these two artists that he'd never really known much before but who did seem to get his music but also they wanted to improvise and bring in other players and, and play with them and he was like a bit whoa I don't know and then you get this thing and, it's, and this song doesn't have that in it but I think it speaks to the rest of the record the, the gentleness of it the beauty of it it's just like so much poise you know it's They'd rein him in really beautifully. Did you yeah. see the quote where he was like, Where were you guys 30 years ago? Yeah. Ta- talking about what a positive effect he felt working with guys like that could have had in his career at an earlier stage. Um, I think the waterfall analogy is really beautiful as well, man, because I will say, see, for the last week, strolling around, taking some long walks, Lubomir Melnick can put a sort of hypnotic, uh, sort of frosted glaze on any moment you're having in any day he can completely change the 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 feel of any situation whether it's watching the leaves and trees or watching a stream or watching people just go about their business watching clouds i mean the 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 music really is quite transcendental in that sense that the hypnotic quality to it it's just it, it overrides almost anything that's going on um, and it's highly recommended if you're a little bit uptight uh, mm-hmm. talking of which the third track A Warmer Place
is so sparse for him. Like it's it's totally understated. The the the, the violin um, and. I think it's either violin and the piano strings or maybe one or the other. Somebody's like scraping them with a nail or a coin or something very quite a brittle. And that that little kind of sort of texture is is a beautiful kind of asymmetrical element in this this arrangement. delicate it's in great contrast to the kind of frenzy of the kind of other pieces here um, and you almost start to feel a little bit weightless the longer this song goes on and it does pick up somewhat um, there's a, a really beautiful long drawn out series of violin notes that sort of start to dictate the sort of root note of, of the part They determine the shifts and the ending of that is especially dreamlike. I think. Yeah, I mean, it, like if there's some pure wanking, I do apologise, but the song it reminded me of spring. Is that like a weird thing to say? It, it, it was kind of like I could feel there's like a chill in the air, and you can kind of smell the grass as well, and the flowers blooming. Blooming, you know, it slowly opens up and just creeps into place, and it's it's so colourful. There's so many colourful notes in it, which sounds like a pure strange thing to say, but you can only really understand what I mean by that if you listen to the song. And that restraint is that's perfect because the way the violin kind of aches behind it is just like this. Fuck, this is like an entire, this is like an entire season captured on one song, you know. And the whole thing, I think, the beautiful thing about this record is I think every single song speaks a different season. I don't know if that's deliberate, but yeah, odd, odd. It was an odd experience listening to this record for me. <laughs> it's a nice change of it's a nice change of pace. I'm glad he put it in there. It's something that he's not done on some other records. They're great for a while, and then you're just like, my god, I'm just so drained listening to all these fucking notes. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it does become a little bit overwhelming. But I mean, true to form, Night Rail from the Sun, the fourth track, very very busy song. This is the one with the guitar, which is an interesting extra element to it. It's also got a bit of synth. Straight out of the gate, by the way, there is a definite Moby comparison waiting to happen with this tune. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I heard the song God, Mo- God Moving Across the Face of the Waters from the Heat soundtrack. Obviously, Moby's doing it with actual RPGers. But yeah, the the piano in this, we didn't actually mention it earlier on, but Lubomir Melnick, a big feature he's playing as well as his constant use of sustain pedal um, to try and allow all those uh, harmonic notes to develop and all the, the kind of resonance to really to, to do its magic. It's something that a lot of the critics and some of the more dismissive reviews pick up on. They just think it's lazy and crass. But it's used. it's slightly less used in this song. It's a little bit more muted than normal. There's a, a bit, it takes about a minute and a half before there's the kind of the first hint of a root change in this. He's, he's very frugal with the roots in this one, at least to begin with. The next one's not, maybe until about two minutes ten. Uh, and then later on, the sort of feedback and the blend of the, the synth and the guitar. It starts to become very post-rocky, this one, actually. And I know there's yeah. comparisons with some of the kind of constellation acts. I don't see the Godspeed comparisons so much as I actually see uh, comparisons with a band called Exhaust. Um, who use a lot more of the droney elements in, in their music as well. But um, And the thing is, with this kind of music, when there's so many notes happening at once and you get that pointillism effect, it does almost become droney. Really, this music really does appeal to fans of drone because even though the grain is so fine, stepping back from it, it, it has a similar... Kind yeah, of, I certainly... Uh, like, comparing it to other minimalist composers, it doesn't actually tie to stuff like you know, Philip Glass or Steve Reich. It, no. it is more like something like Sun or Mertzbow or something like that. It's way more about the overall wash of sound rather than... Yeah. 
some interesting names you brought up there as well there because he was a he was a huge fan of Steve Reich and Terry Riley, but not a fan of Philip Glass. He actually felt that the work of Philip Glass it didn't have enough respect for the the need for competence on the instrument. You know, he's he's a big believer that that musicians should be highly competent mm-hmm. on their instrument, that there's real merit that comes from really working at stuff. He's definitely not a Sonic Youth fan. Um and so his his idols are people like you know, he loves Jimi Hendrix not for the music but for the sheer effortless mastery of the instrument. And he felt that Philip Glass enabled sort of charlatans to play a wee bit too much. Not Philip Glass personally, but the people who were doing his music didn't have to be as talented to do it, and therefore it didn't really work for him. But yeah, I agree. It, it, it speaks to a kind of slightly different part of you. Um, the fifth track, Le, Le Mirror de Amor, which I guess is the mirror of love, um, has this really, very, very distinct from most of his canon, I would say. is like this weeping violin-led departure... Mm-hmm. minimalist, delicate, loads of detail there's a lot of like, even after the violin string stops resonating um, Peter's kind of kept pulling the bow across it so you hear the squeak and the scrape, little hints of Arvo Part actually in some of the minimalism of this one, um, it kind of conjured to me a sort of slightly more American frontier feel uh, there was something less sort of Eastern European about it um, the, the piano does thicken up around about 3, about three minutes 50, something like that It, the song's got some mistakes still included in it. I think it's probably the most cinematic on the record as well, albeit a bit cheesy. do get also get the impression that they realised that it was getting a little bit cheesy because what happens at the end is that um, the melody actually starts to decay so that the artists keep playing but they slowly dismantle the kind of cheesiness of it. So this, 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 the chords become less and less and less sympathetic with each other and the, the, the noise becomes more of a texture yeah. than a melody. It's, it's quite an interesting way to deconstruct the sweetness. But I'm glad they did that because I do think it would have been a schmaltzy way to end the album if they hadn't have identified that and addressed it. Yeah, I, mean, I think I'm there's a, two pianos on that. I think he's playing two pianos on that because it, there's one pan to the left and one to the right and the violin's in the centre, which is not like any other song on the records. Could be. Um, he does play two pianos, but he also does, the, with their miking of the pianos, they're often, they pay a lot of attention, you know, they'll have multiple mics on their pianos and they'll pan the mics in the stereo image, so you'll have maybe the lower end of the scale to your left, the higher end of the scale to your right, and then you'll have like a room, or a couple of room condensers that are sort of con- like gelling the whole mix together, so they, they have experimented with the, the miking and panning, so it, it could be two, I've, I've never actually noticed that myself, but I'm a big, big fan of this record. As I say, highly torn on the guy himself. But every single time I put it on, I'm like, fucking hell, man. This is really beautiful. The improvised nature of this one in particular, the collaboration, I agree with you, Mark. I think generally, not always, but as a rule, he has better results working with people. Maybe they rein in some of his tendencies. But this, I think, is a, it's very much a sweet spot in his career. Uh, albeit we've, we've kind of flagged up a couple of other real highs, but this is the one that lands strongest as an overall album for me. And I just think the guy, I mean, he has, for me, he has to be in this list. He's arrogant, yeah, but he's doing something exceptional. And he has sort of flown under the radar, whether that's because his peers are a bit derisive or a bit threatened, whether that's because it's just a bit too much for people like us, or it could be any number of things, but... I think he'll be somebody that maybe acquires a little bit more infamy after his death. You know, one of those one of those people. I, I would I would probably go for it. I'm also torn about his general shittiness of opinions. <laughs> uh, but 
Man, this is unsung, right? And I think he is unsung for what he is. Nobody really knows what he does, apart from a very select amount of people. Um, hopefully that will change, like you say, and as he, you know, as time goes on. I don't think we'd be doing a job right if we didn't have some caveats on this one, but I think we should probably go on. Yeah, I'm, see, I'm unsure. I, t- I totally get it, but I think, like, on a, on a personal level, there's just something about it that just doesn't quite click with me and I understand that he like he falls in this gap between funnily enough it's between like two things I I sort of studied when I was doing my advanced higher music part one was I did Rachmaninoff's Rhapsody on a theme of on of Paganini as my composition that I studied which is like this beautiful big romantic piano and violin concerto and there's just some really over-the-top romantic piano in that and it's very structured because it's you know very you know classical in its uh, in its form but I love just how beautiful and overly romantic that piece of music is. It doesn't have the structure of classical form. And then, funnily enough, when I was doing my composition piece, I used to play... Did You guys used to have um, Guitar Pro. Uh, yeah. For you, it was like a, a tab program on your PC mm-hmm. that you used to be able to like tab your things. But I used that to actually write lots of music and my, I remember my dad ca- coming in and like listening to a lot of the stuff that I'd written which was just like do he was like Weaver you're, all you're doing is this just sounds like Philip Glass have you been listening to lots and lots of Philip Glass and I was like who's Philip Glass and then it turned mm-hmm. out that when I was one or two my dad used to play Glassworks by Philip Glass Ensemble to get me to sleep it was like sort of lullaby music and I'd never. Hey, can I can I just interject for two seconds, Mark? Did you pick up on the fact that David Weaver's dad calls him Weaver? Oh, <laughs> everybody in my house calls each other Weaver. My mum and dad call each other Weaver, and then they call me Weaver, and I call them Weaver. So you know, right? That doesn't no really right, make man. sense. Um, but yeah, so it turns out that I'd, I've had Philip Glass, and in particular uh, Glassworks, this sort of. 20th century minimalist masterpiece ingrained in my mind without even noticing and that record is then or like Philip Glass and then Steve Reich and Terry Riley and stuff like that I go back to a lot now and it's weird that this sort of what to me well what is this sort of unique selling point of Melnick that it falls between like the sort of romanticism and structure of classical music and then the more um well actually the structure of minimalist stuff like that of glass and reich i just wanted to go and listen to philip glass when when i put this record on and there's it's funny that he ended up slagging off philip glass um you know for not pushing the performer enough but like there's a few tracks uh, and I think there's, I think number two on his last album, which was "Son of Parasol" on Fallen Trees, pretty yeah. much is just the opening of Glassworks, but in a different key. Yeah, so he can play it on one piano compared to uh, Philip Glass composing it for a concerto, but to the ears that doesn't really matter. And then you know he's he's putting that out f- fifty years after the fact. So like, I totally get it. And I understand that he's pushing the envelope and I really wanted to be able to close my eyes and like get washed away in the way that I do like when I listen to Sun but it's evil or whatever. Um, But I don't know, it just didn't quite click with me. Um, So like I fight, he's a really interesting character. I really enjoyed reading about it and I put his music on when I went for a bath and then it was on for four minutes and then I put Philip Glass on. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> that's how it's gone for me. But, okay. two but one. thank you for... Uh, yeah, 2-1. Cool. Yeah, I mean, that sort of reflects, uh, I think, my spiritual split. I, I, I do break in favour of him purely because I love his music, but uh, you can represent the emotional caveats that I hold. Okay, perfect. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, next is time. Who's first? Who's first? The- 
This is the first time we're seeing Nexus tonight. Will it be the last? What do they have in store this, this for us? Not good for Why am I here? You're in the Nexus. This is the Nexus. For you, this is what you want. Nexus time. I do have a very good one. I'm going to have to turbo speed through it, though. Right, go for it. Yeah. Uh, I'm first, I'm going to. Oh, yeah, so mm-hmm. uh, we are connecting to Lisa Novak, who... Uh, is a former American engineer, naval flight officer, and NASA, NASA astronaut who uh, actually went on the Space Shuttle Discovery mission in 2006. She was responsible for operating robotic arms. And she was also, one less than a year later, was arrested <laughs> uh, for the attempted kidnapping of fellow Air Force Captain Colleen Shipman, uh, and all down to a sort of a f- love triangle. Love Square. Yeah, yeah actually, it was, was a Love Square, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. So um, <laughs> Novak was released on bail, but um, yeah, she she like travelled to Orlando, Orlando, Florida with BB pellets and rope and you know everything. Attempted attempted murder. She was charged with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, yeah, some buzz, um, some women. Yeah. Okay. So I got a belter. I touched on all of our favourite bases here, guys. Lubomir Melnik uh, says that one of his two top musical inspirations uh, is Stanley Kubrick. Yep. He thinks that Stanley Kubrick used film to to channel emotions that so many musicians fail to channel through the pieces themselves. And he said he took a lot of work, including like the likes of Schubert, and made it better the, the way he he complemented it visually and aesthetically. Did you know that mm-hmm. in so you, 2001 there was supposed to be an original score for that whole film? But he just put down like suggested pieces for it then to be scored. But it was he'd nailed it. It was too perfect, and it actually worked better um, and gave these things a sort of new meaning. So um, when you're uh, too good, exactly, you're too good. Just accidentally um, shut it out. So uh, Stanley Kubrick worked with a fella called Arthur Jaffa. Arthur Jaffa is like a director, an artist, a cinematographer uh, who was involved, I think, with Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, he also did uh, two Solange videos. Now, I think he did a Jay-Z video as well, but I couldn't find as much about that. Solange is the younger sister of Beyoncé Knowles. In 2010, at New Year's Eve, Beyonce Knowles was paid $2 million to perform, I think it was a 45-minute set on the island of St. Bart's in the Caribbean for a fella called Motasim Hannibal Gaddafi, the son of Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, Also in attendance, by the way, were John Bon Jovi, Lindsay Lohan and Russell Simmons, defenders of Def Jam. What? <laughs> Beyonce did a concert for Hannibal Gaddafi uh, and then after getting almost a year's worth of flack for it uh, she eventually claims that she donated the money to a charity although, you know, whatever um, now, Hannibal Gaddafi was the brother of Sadi Gaddafi uh, Sadi Gaddafi, Dave, you probably know this guy Played for Perugia yeah, yes. so, exactly <laughs> the, the, the football fucking maestro here uh, Sadi Gaddafi was dad basically got him the captaincy of Tripoli's football club or one of the clubs in Tripoli from there uh, Silvio Berlusconi contacted the owner of Perugia or the boss of Perugia and suggested they sign this guy as it was going to help during the oil crisis so they signed Sadi Gaddafi to Perugia now he didn't actually play for Perugia he managed to make the bench and before uh, getting a game he was transferred to Udinese uh, he actually he did actually play 10 minutes for Udinese um, by the way whilst he was playing at Udinese uh, back in Libya uh, under his dad's regime a fella called Bashir Auriani, who also played football in Libya was killed and found floating in the river after he'd criticised Sadi Gaddafi um, and Sadi Gaddafi obviously said oh it wasn't me I was in Italy at the time whatever uh, from Udinese he went to Sampdoria uh, and after Sampdoria he ended up going back to Tripoli 
by the way, uh, Sadi Gaddafi in 2011, when he went back to Tripoli, was put in charge of quashing an uprising. This is when the Arab Spring was kicking off and just prior to the civil war. It was prior or during the civil war in Libya. Uh, he was in a compound and this ex-football player and playboy and uh, all manner of other things, drug addict, all these things, um, actually ordered uh, that they open fire on 200 unarmed protesters outside this compound that were protesting the regime using anti-aircraft guns, uh, which caused quite a mess as it cut the unarmed peaceful protesters literally into bits. Uh, and that was all this uh, this football player. Um he also, by the way, hired Maradona and Ben Johnson, two of the world's least druggy sportsmen, <laughs> <laughs> as advisors and trainers. But uh, Sadi Gaddafi actually trained with Gaza during a trial at Lazio and then played against Gaza years later in, uh, in Libya during a Middlesbrough-Tripoli sort of, uh, what do you call it, an exhibition match in yeah. uh, May, May of 2000. Uh, Gaza, Paul Gascoigne, in 2016, was caught singing uh, the famous Glasgow anthem, Billy Boys, Uh, a a sold out Rangers event in Glasgow the Billy Boys song describes the gang, the Billy Boys which can operate in the 20s and 30s which was founded in Glasgow's East End in Brigton by a guy called Billy Fullerton Uh, it was a Protestant gang it was designed like really out to kind of resist the Catholics by the way Billy Fullerton for anybody you know that goes to Rangers and says that Billy Boy's song is just a bit of fun. Uh, Billy Fullerton later joined the British fascists, uh, which then merged with Oswald Mosley's Black Shirts. Now, the Billy Boy's gang uh, was depicted in as kind of the main rivals in season five of Peaky Blinders. Uh, Peaky Blinders, the Peaky Blinders, are led by Killian Murphy's character, Thomas Shelby. Thomas Shelby's favourite cigarettes in that are called Sweet Aftons. By the way, Sweet Aftons, I was going to go this way, but I went a different way, are also the favourite cigarette of Jean-Paul Sartre and Margot, <laughs> Margot Tenenbaum from the Royal Tenenbaums. That's what she's smoking in that. Uh, Sweet Afton takes its name from a poem by Robert Burns uh, about Afton Water which is a place in Ayrshire, there's like a, a motorway bridge over like the E70 something that has a plaque on it and this, the, the, the poem's actually often sung to the tune of Away in a Manger <clears throat> Sweet Afton 23, inspired by the poem by Robert Burns, is the YouTube handle of a musician called Molly Lewis who rose to some kind of semi-celebrity because of covers of Britney Spears Toxic and some by Lady Gaga uh, in 2008 she also released a song called Road Trip the song Road Trip details uh, Lisa Novak's trip to kidnap Colleen Shipman with a wig, bin bags, gloves, a BB gun, hammer, a trench coat, an 8 inch knife and loads more because <laughs> <laughs> the next fling and there you go, next eye Great work Superb Is up uh, Yes yeah, so um, Melnick is on the Erased Tapes label And a fellow um, Composer uh, Is Michael Price uh, Michael Price um, He's been doing Composing for Contemporary Dance uh, since the since the 90s and has then gone on to work with uh, Michael Kamen on uh, Event Horizon great movie good, good film another underrated classic uh, and then yeah. went on to take on uh, film score projects for the likes of Children of Men Lord of the Rings trilogy uh, and he funnily enough he worked on Hot Fuzz uh, Simon Pegg and uh, Nick what's his name the other guy uh, yeah um, so Simon Pegg, he appeared in a 2006 black comedy film starring David Schwimmer and uh, also featured Natasha McElhone. It looks fucking shite, but Natasha McElhone is a good actress. I like her. She was in Ronin. What was the, fil- what was the film called? Uh, big Nothing, 2006. Sorry. Rings a bell, yeah. But uh, i big fan of Natasha McElhone because she's good in Ronin and The Truman Show. McElhone's parents were uh, Noreen and Michael Taylor, both journalists. Uh, Michael Taylor later they later separated, and Noreen remarried the uh, Guardian journalist and columnist Roy Greenslade, who at one point was accused of being an Irish republicanist because I think he was writing secretly for a Sinn Féin newspaper. Uh, he's also been a, a outspoken critic of Russian state propaganda, in particular the Russia Beyond newspaper um, and blog. At the it used to be called Russia Beyond the Headlines, so it was launched in two thousand and seven. Roy Greenslade 
has been a very vocal critic. Uh, Russia Beyond, at one point, I mean, this is a great Wikipedia page, alcohol and spaceflight. <laughs> uh, and the Russian state media. So it, booze is completely banned on American space flights. Uh, apparently Buzz Aldrin drank some wine on a secret communion he took during Apollo 11, but that ceremony was not broadcast due to uh, wanting to maintain a separation between church and state. However, Russian uh, <laughs> air and spa- uh, space flight, apparently cosmonauts ab- aboard Mir were allowed uh, cognac, vodka and ginseng liqueur, supposedly for <laughs> health reasons. Um, but yeah, so uh, Russia Beyond did that, has said that recently alcohol has officially been banned on uh, yeah i know uh, just when you're getting back on it and you're about to become a cosmonaut <laughs> uh, one of the the largest uh, scandals involving alcohol and spaceflight actually involved elisa novak where yes um in 2007 once the charges and the love square came up um some unsubstantiated claims came up that there was some uh, drunken canoodling <laughs> in space uh, which is a uh, fantastic uh, big lisa pissed in space <laughs> sure uh mine's, mine's is mercifully short you'll be glad to know um so i like it <laughs> uh, co- co- how do you say the name of this record again Corollaries. Corollaries, okay. Corollaries was produced, co-produced or mixed rather by Nils Fram. He is a very good friend and has done some work alongside Oliver Arnold, um, who is a very good classical musician in his own right and has done a lot of soundtracks. Most recently he's done a soundtrack for a TV show on Apple's fledgling Apple TV service called Defending Jacob, which stars Chris Evans. Chris Evans is in an adventure and uh, <laughs> <laughs> so is Chris Hemsworth um, who was Thor and in the first two Thor films uh, his main squeeze was Dr Jane Foster who was played by Natalie Portman and Natalie Portman recently played sorry Natalie Portman recently starred in the film Lucy in the Sky which is loosely based on Lisa Novak's criminal charges around her affair with the astronaut William I don't even know how to say his name. It's got a lot of E's and F's in it. Olfine? Olfine? Yep. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Great work. Jackpot. All right. Well done, lads. Some that was a meaty intellectual dinner. Next is thing. It was. Yeah. Many notes were played. Many notes were played. Fingers are tired. Many, many notes were written as well. So, <laughs> uh, so we're doing it. something a bit different next week, are we? Let's do a change of pace. Let's do we, like we need to. Yeah, we do need to catch up on some kind of bonus content for subscribers at some point as well. But uh, in the meantime, let's take a swing at a mixtape. And a mixtape of. Well, you guys, we've kind of been idly chatting about stuff and I think it's a good time to do a most underrated live album. I'm into it. I fucking hate live albums, so I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) Yeah, they they can be patchy. I'm sure we'll discuss that. Um, But yeah, let's do that. So that's going to be one from each of us as well as a little bit of banter before it. And then a Nexus. A Nexus. And that Nexus will be... We probably won't be able to read it if you hold it up because you've got so few pixels. Oh, it's it's uh, it's Dave Weaver's Nexus. Oh, who did it? Oh, Dave. Uh, Abdul Kader Kamil Mohammed, the Prime Minister of Djibouti. Oh, of course. <laughs> 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 Fuck. <laughs> really painting myself into a corner here. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. <laughs> Given that I already know what Mark's uh, album choice is, that's going to be a peach of a Nexus. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, here we that's go. Be fun. Um, yeah, okay, looking forward to that. I'm going to start <laughs> fucking idiot. researching You're now. You're fucking idiot. What have you done? <laughs> oh, well. Oh, man, okay. That's um, right. I'll have to try and square that circle. Love squares. Yeah. Um, okay, it's been that a pleasure. Fun, guys. Uh, take care. Bye. Bye.